0: Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of Deaf Studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethann Michael Fox. Let's get started. Happy November, Renske, and happy 30th episode of the Deaf Studies Podcast. And thank you, wonderful listeners for being here. Happy November.
1: And yes, we did some calculations. And if we include all our special bonus episodes, we've made 30 beautiful, if I do say so myself, very different and diverse episodes. And I look forward and I feel we just make up a lot of anniversaries as we go along.
0: Here's to the next 30. Yeah, we've got to celebrate them all. And as ever, do get in touch at podcast at gmail.com if you've got suggestions for people you'd like to hear or if you just want to give us any feedback or get in touch and of course you can buy our beautiful merch for your cozy cozy winter sweaters unless you live in somewhere where it's hot right now in which case buy yourself a badge and of course we do still want your one minute clips or little bits of audio to promote any books recent publications journal articles projects that you're working on send them in and we'll include them in the next episode In fact, we actually have some audio for you right now from Mike Alvarez. Mike has sent in a reading from Unraveling, an autoethnography of suicide and renewal that is out now with Routledge. Here's Mike.
2: As soon as I walked through the sliding doors, I heard a scream. The EMT escorting me from the ambulance didn't seem faced by it, but I could feel the hair on my arms and neck rise as if electrically charged. The nurse at the front desk asked me to sit, so I did. She disappeared behind a wood panel door. Minutes later, she reappeared with a white styrofoam tray. You look hungry, she said, placing the tray on my lap. Why don't you eat while we get the paperwork started? I looked at the tray's contents. Applesauce, buttered bread, turkey with gravy, chocolate milk. They reminded me of grade school, of childhood simplicity. When I peeled the plastic wrap, I noticed there was no knife, just a spork, napkin, and straw. The moment I dipped the spork into the applesauce, the piercing scream returned. This time, it didn't stop. There was no mistaking it. The scream belonged to a child. I imagined a boy no older than eight. Helpless, pinned to the ground by two orderlies, his voice the last remnant of his agency. Terror stricken by the sight of a needle in gloved hands, the boy would kick and flail and then yelp when needle finally broke skin. I almost lost my appetite. The scream turned into quiet sobs until all I could hear was the compressor churning in the nearby water cooler. The boy must be sedated now, lying in a pool of urine, saliva trickling down his chin. His hands and face, his white T-shirt and trousers, would be caked with feces, or so I imagined. The silence was unnerving. I looked in the child's direction, but concrete walls obstructed my view. Powerless, I resumed eating. The applesauce was runny, the turkey dry, and the bread stale, but I wolfed them down all the same. For weeks, I'd eaten nothing but crackers and soda. The nurse returned with a wooden clipboard. If you could just sign these when you're ready, she said. I looked over the forms, reading only the bold and italicized letters before signing away my claim to normalcy. The fluorescent lights overhead lost their intensity, the white walls their glow. Even the pervasive smell of hand sanitizer was suddenly neutralized. My perceptions no longer belonged to me. Here I would be told what I was seeing, thinking, feeling.
0: What have we got today, Netsk? Or who? Who have we got today?
1: Yes, uh, we've got a lovely interview with Feluca Taylor. I'm very excited to share this uh, with everyone. I very much enjoyed our conversation. I do have to give a little note that I think Feluka was so prepared that she was holding some pieces of paper. And it's only during the first question, but she, there is a bit of a crinkle. But because we didn't want to cut out some of the things she was saying we've left in some of the crinkle because otherwise we were losing some of her pearls of wisdom so apologies for the sound at the start of the episode but if you plow
0: through the first question the crinkle is gone yeah and it's beautiful for Luke, wisdom for the rest of the app, and it is a glorious app if we can say so ourselves it was so engaging so we came across Feluke when we were at the Centre for Deaf and Society 2023 online conference and she was presenting on a panel there so as you all know conferences are great for just like connecting and meeting other people and hearing new ideas and as soon as we heard this panel we were like we'd really like to invite Feluke on and we're absolutely thrilled uh, when she agreed so tell us a bit more about Feluke please, friends.
1: Feluka Taylor is a therapist, writer, working with an asterisk to signal black feminist modes of creation, space making, and care. She teaches at the Metanoia Institute in London and is a trustee for Mislexia for Women Who Write. She's author of How the Hiding Seek and Unruly Therapeutic Black Feminist Writings and Practices in Living Room, published by W.W. Norton in February, 2023. She's currently based in London, and we very much hope you enjoy this episode. Great. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today with us, Faluke. And could you tell us a bit about your background
3: and how death features into your work? Yes, Renster, thank you for that. It's an interesting place to start because I don't think I realized death featured in my work in any very conscious way until... Last year, when I presented with a colleague of mine, Robert Downs, at a conference called Decolonizing Greens, I think. And I think we were approached because of our work, wake work, in therapeutic work. And wake work is a term from Christina Sharp in the Lake, in Black Distant Being. And the way describes these afterlives of transatlantic slavery, and she frames it within which black life everywhere is swept up, that globally there is this experience of premature death, what she calls imminent and imminent death, That that it's continually unfolding, but we are closer to it, statistically more likely to experience it. Yes. Yeah, so it's a kind of living with and in death if you like, but I don't think I thought of it as death studies. I think I was interested in that work specifically because I was doing a piece of research around parenting. And in the end, I framed it as parenting in the wake. I realized, reflecting on it, I have five children who are all adults now, but I realized that, oh, so many of the decisions we'd made about where to be, how to live, how not to live, what to do, were around this really managing this way, managing them as black life, black children in this environment. So I was really touched and moved and grieved and and stimulated by this work. And I am a therapist, so I brought it into therapeutic work. And then we were invited to do this conference on decolonizing grief. And somebody who attended, I have to say, I'm not sure how much people really got what we were talking about in that session because I think that the event was really framed around death in a very, I'm going to say straight way. What it's like to lose a loved one, what it's like to leave, funeral arrangements, spiritual kind of perspectives. So because we were talking about death in life, really, more structural concerns, and maybe lives that are not grievable, but should be. It was a bit hard, I think, for people to relate to me. So it, so there was a kind of sense, and it was online of like nobody in the room. There was almost a hundred people or more than a hundred people in the the online space. And it felt like nobody was there. It was a bit spooky. But somebody called Jane McCarthy, professor um, was in there and, responded and responded really, you know, full-heartedly and with interest and was really present. And after that contacted me and has contacted me on many occasions, actually, one of which was the conference, I think, where you heard me speak, the CDAS conference, which was over, I think, two days or more, I'm not sure. And there were like hundreds of people and so many workshops. And then I realized, oh, there's this whole field called death studies and there's all these people in so many places in it and I guess my work does fit, but its I feel like a little bit of an imposter. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I don't know. Death does feature in my work, but I like to think of my work as being very life centric. Here I am.
1: <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of death studies, a lot of it is about life and it's very life-affirming, but it's just thinking about a different different sets of questions. It's also your your talking right now reminds me of the book. I've got it there, Grieving While Black, and it's talking about loss in such a broader sense than just, yeah, loss of life, but just, yeah, everyday losses, loss of potential futures or opportunities. And, and also like reading your book, which we'll get into today, it always makes me reflect on how I live my life and how certain things are very much not an issue for me. And I find it therefore so important and fascinating to speak to you today. And also one of the things I found really interesting is that you follow Christina Sharp in calling yourself a therapist with asterisk in front of it. Could you explain why you do that? So you put a little note before the word therapist. Can you explain your reasoning for doing so?
3: The asterisk is it's like space making punctuation for me and it's really about when we hear the word therapist, I think mostly we think we know what it means or it conjures a particular set of relationships and a particular activity, maybe even a particular space, a therapy room, weekly sessions. I don't know. If it, 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 there, there are lots of associations with it. We think we know what it means. And I was listening to another podcast, the poet Natalie Diaz speaking, About colonial lexicons. And it was really interesting because she was talking about empathy, which, as a therapist, is something that I think about a lot. And she was really talking about English is a young language. Modern English is a young language. It's a colonial language, which means it has subsumed, smothered, extinguished a lot of older languages. And Maybe that's another thing we're grieving constantly, the loss of languages and ways of knowing and and speaking to the world. But what she pointed out was that not only are the languages lost, but sometimes modern English doesn't quite have enough space to hold. It's too young to carry some of the meanings. It's colonial in that it can't carry the meanings of the older languages. So that with a word like empathy... In a colonial lexicon, empathy means something like being able to, to feel how it might be to have somebody else's experience, something like that. But she said, what if it's not really enough? What about if feeling it is, is not enough? If actually, if you feel somebody's distress or need, could it not also include the response to that need, like doing something about it? And it really made me think about that, how we just take a word, we're told what it means, we learn it, and then we sit with that. As opposed to what feels like a kind of a stretching, expanding activity where we might think, what else could it mean? What else has it meant? What are its other possibilities? So the asterisk is partly that, to unsettle the idea of what a therapist is, and part of why I want to do that is is the other thing it stands for, and I think Christina Sharp uses it in this way. One of the ways she uses it is it stands for blackness as the position of the unthought, which is a term from Sadia Hartman and Frank Wilderson. But that it is often not thought, and actually, if it if we could think from the position of blackness, it would change a lot of things. It, it adds a, a dimension that is missing also therapist thinking blackness as something that often isn't thought and this sense of what we call like black feminist futurity the what is not yet but must be what is it to to think about the world that must be and what it would take to live that now so something about what else what if what more Um, from where else, other possibilities that are kind of restricted and maybe made invisible in the word therapist. It's I think Jane was trying to describe it because we're contributing to a journal and they couldn't really manage these asterisks. And I think she described it as the space of indeterminacy which is, is kind of true, but I still think it misses something of what I'm trying to say about it. But anyway, we live with it and at least it's of interest, even if it's a bit of trouble for people to think about.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating and we'll have some more questions on language later on. So for example, I've never thought of the word remember in the way that you've used it and talk about it in the book also because in, in Dutch it doesn't quite work in the same way as it does in English, but it's one of the things... I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about today. But the reason we invited you, and you've already touched upon that a bit, is that we both saw you speak at the CDAS conference, and we were the quiet audience uh, listening to this panel, having very interesting ideas. So we were wondering, what does decolonizing, the aftermath of death, uh, mean to you? What are your
3: thoughts on this topic? I mean, decolonizing is everywhere, now isn't it the idea of it the word crops up and partly that's good news and I think partly it's bad news for us and one of the ways that I see this written and the way that I tend to write it is with the d in brackets and then colonizing as a way of remembering that we can't speak about decolonizing unless we're also speaking about colonizing number one It's not a kind of that was then and this is now situation. And also that decolonizing is as old as colonizing. There has always been resistance. There's always been other ways of thinking and being. So I, in the first event that I mentioned, what I was speaking about in terms of decolonizing grief, I spoke about particular deaths, including that of sisters Biba Henry and Nicole Smallman in London in 2020 they were reported missing by their families and in the end it was a family member who found their bodies in a park and the police then as well as I guess being very slow to look for them then the police officers who were responsible for kind of guarding the crime scene and their bodies took photos and shared them on their social messaging apps and made jokes about it. So there's that, and then there was Richard Okorogay, who was a young man, 19, whose mother reported him missing the following year. When she went to the police station, the police said, well, if you can't find your son, how do you expect us to? And his body was found a few days later. And really, I was using these examples to show how the the aftermath of these deaths and the response of the police show that some lives are not grievable or their deaths are not treated the same. So that often we can think about this universal experience as if there's a we who experiences death in a particular way or experience the world in a particular way. And people refer to this in different ways. But the one I really like is Dion Brand, who's a poet, talks about the aggregated we that is already disaggregated. Some other people talk about an assumptive we. But basically, there isn't that we doesn't exist. There are several we's with different experiences. And a colonizing way of being with that is to deny that. is to to suggest, has always been to suggest, there's one way of knowing there are these hierarchies, this is at the top, this is at the bottom, that's it, and this is us, we. For instance, in climate change, we, the Anthropocene in which man, people, are the cause of this terrible disaster. Well, I don't know if it's as simple as we did that. So decolonizing for me, the point is that it would mean is the ongoing process of making something visible, making visible this, the lie that this universal is, making visible pluriversal mm-hmm. realities, if you like. That's how I think about decolonizing. The aftermath of death, I I don't feel expert enough on death studies to have to have fully thought this through but one of the thoughts I've had is that even the word aftermath of death creates a sense that we're only interested in in what happens after death but again what I've been talking about is no what happens when you're in the middle of death when it's an ongoing living with death and how might that be described and how would this field be different if we could expand that idea of aftermath or use different language that would allow us to think meaningfully about other griefs and other experiences. Just beautiful. I just read a book called
1: Aftermaths by Prati Taneja. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. She taught creative writing to a person who attacked people at a prison education conference. So he was convicted for terrorism and this is in some ways it's it, the book is also about griefability and whether like the the accidents uh, could have been prevented whether she has a role in it and she also very much plays with language and yeah a lot of what you're saying I think really resonates with me from that book as well is yeah whose lives are grievable who do we talk about she talks about a uh, British Asian people still having to fit in the mold and If they don't succeed in British society, it is an individual failure. But if they do succeed, well, look at society, giving them opportunities. And this year, you published a book, Unruly Therapeutic. And I always do this with books. I'm now holding it up to you as if... (laughs) This is now used to the listener. But Unruly Therapeutic Black Feminist Writings and Practices in the Living Room and... I love the title. I love the book. And I, whilst reading it, that's why there are so many sticky notes sticking out. I think you've you introduced so many interesting ideas and I, for the reader to think further about it and develop it. But before I talk to you about why I think you wrote the book, why did you write the
3: book? <laughs> it would be interesting, wouldn't it? To go that all around. Why you think I read the book and then why I wrote the book. Well, let's see how. how how it matches up. I mean, in the first instance, I'll give you a response that you've probably heard so many times before and I've heard many times in that it's the book I needed to read. It was the book I needed. But I guess if we think of that in terms of what I've already said about space making and not yet, it was very much the thing that I need that isn't that I now need to make because it isn't. And it's not that it just kind of came from me needing it, but that ongoing over my life as a therapist, ongoing conversations with other therapists, other black therapists that were very alive for us and very influential and informing the work, but often were not in any of the texts. They're not written. And as somebody who teaches psychotherapists, what I recognize is, there was a real need for it to be citable, for it to be referenceable in assignments and essays and papers. And really, that's why I I committed, I guess, to actually pulling it together. Uh, that and I got lots of encouragement from other people to do it. I don't know if I could have done it by myself. But yeah, that's kind of why i wrote it i'm interested to to hear why you might have thought i wrote it
1: similar to that i i think it's about yeah carving out a space but also thinking about psychotherapy in a different way i think with a lot of disciplines i'm an anthropologist by training but there's always this idea of the genealogy of ideas and we have to rehash all the same series all the time and then we ignore a lot of things that may have happened during that, those times as well, but they don't, as you say, they're not as citable as other people or they're not well known enough. And I think a certain way of writing, what I got away as a reader is that, as I was saying earlier, is you introduce a lot of ideas, but you're not giving a definitive answer of this is the way it is. It's just, this is one way of thinking about this particular topic and you can now go away and f- see how you feel about that. And I think it's in a very much a contrast to other work. The other day I tried to for the millionth time I tried to start reading The Denial of Deaths by Ernest Becker, which is slight a lot. And I think every time I get a few pages further, but his tone is so, this is the way it is, and I can't deal with it. So that's why I thought your book is such a breath of fresh air to me, but like, this is the way it might be, or this is the way it is for me uh, at this point in time. And this is a very waffling answer to uh, the question. But I was wondering, you also at the start say that you don't have a definitive linear route with the book or that kind of purpose, but how? what was your process of writing it? How did you make the choice to write it in the way that you did And as you note, you're right with the material rather than about it. So how does that work in practice? Um,
3: well, first of all, I say, I really like your answer and I don't know that book, there are many books that I don't know that are probably really like essential reading. And I, I think there can be trouble with that in that we think we should have read it in order to be taken seriously, but there can also be trouble because In the taking it seriously, it actually changes us in some way. So we might lose something of what I'm thinking of as the not knowing. I love the space of not knowing in which there's potential to know what is not known yet. And maybe what nobody knows yet, particularly when we do it together. So I really liked your answer. And how did I come to write it or the process of writing started With the research into parenting in the wake and that dissertation, which was a poetic inquiry, which simply means I took pieces from the book, Christina Sharp's book, but also other poetic works and wrote with them as a way of exploring what might come of it. And it's really different. Writing with is really different. It's not interrogating the text. It's not trying to understand it it's more like moving with it and conversing so moving and conversing with it and sometimes in that process what I found with the writing is you kind of spiral and sometimes go way away from what might be seen as the most obvious meanings of the text but in that spiral it never failed to come back to the text and in that journey somehow I would find something new Something surprising, even if it wasn't new, it's new to me. It's surprising. And I like that process. So for me, writing with was very generative and it took me to places that I couldn't imagine, or I couldn't have imagined, which is obviously very fulfilling and rich, but also again, as somebody who teaches, I see that one of the barriers to reading. Is this absolute need to understand it that almost sometimes before students have even started to read a text, they're in terror. They're in some kind of terror relationship with they won't understand it or they can't understand it or the language, you know, they're. And that seems to me to be because we can't bear the not knowing. The not knowing feels like such a failure or it's such a dangerous place. And And you'll be exposed as as somebody who's who's not up to something. So writing with, to me, is a way of making space for the not knowing to be more potential and maybe even pleasurable and generative. So I think it's a really helpful process. And I use it, you know, I, I encourage students to do that, particularly when it's a text that you're like, I just can't read this. I don't know what it's about. I don't like them, you know, all of that. Okay, let's write with it and see what comes. It's a kind of different relationship. So that's how it started. And I guess I was, you know, reading a lot of black feminism at the time. And I say in the book something about not wanting to exhaust myself in Freud's library, that I think this is the danger of that model that says you have to read all these important works before you can start thinking otherwise. Well, yeah, but how long is it going to take me to read all of these things? And once I've swallowed all of that, will there be any room or energy left for what else is out there? You know, the the less easily found pathways, thinking of Sarah Ahmed's work on citational superhighways. Freud is a superhighway. I get it. People spend their whole lives looking very deeply into his work. And I'm not saying that's not valuable. I'm just saying we can't all do that because there are so many other pathways available and in need of exploration.
1: One of the reasons I, every now and again, I pick up the denial of death is because it's supposedly such a classic. And also because so many people say we, again, Universal, deny deaths. And I don't agree with that. And it's part of me that I feel I need to read this text to be able to like refute it better. But also every time I try, it's like, no, I'm just going to say that because it feels to me, it doesn't feel right. But I don't have, like, also, I haven't read a lot of Freud, but I do disagree with some of the things I've read about people, other people writing about them. So it's, again, this level, do we need to go to the source or at some point, can we just break away from that and continue with our own thoughts and ideas. To go back to Freud, we wrote down a little quote from the book, which I'm going to read out now. And it says, It's 1992. I meet Sigmund Freud and his crew. Their experiences and insights are essential knowledge for us therapists in the making. I also have experiences and insights. The teachers advise that before there can be space for this, to qualify for permission to create such space... I must first study those who have thought before me. It seems I need to make sense of this to find a reason for all the before thinkers being white and male and for none of them thinking much about what it is to not be white or male. So can you talk a bit about carving space and carving space for
3: yourself in psychotherapy? You know, yesterday I watched a series of talks and a panel discussion. I think it was about... Freudo anarchism about Freud and anarchism, but one of the panelists whose name is Carter J. Carter, he's a psychoanalyst. He's a friend of a friend of mine, actually, Lara Sheehan, who I work with sometimes. That I had come across him, but not really heard him speak. And he said he he lives on a farm. He's got a farm in some remote place in north america at the moment but he, he qualified as a psychoanalyst uh, and said he really felt the the need to escape the gravitational pull of the institution the psychoanalytic institution so he went and bought a farm in the middle of nowhere and now he raises cows and i thought oh yeah that would be something wouldn't it and he's still very much using psychoanalytic thinking but in this really different space and i recognized a similar feeling I I needed to keep a distance from that gravitational pull but of course the dilemma as a black woman and I think a lot of people who who experience marginalization have is trying to balance the need to be in inside to be to get the qualifications to get access to be taken seriously with the risks of being in as in of being rearranged and of losing oneself, being kind of suffocated in a way, not being able to breathe with one's own ideas and one's own ways of knowing and and living. I guess in terms of space-making or carving space, in fact, that song, you know, um, don't let them change you or even rearrange them, or even rearrange you. Do you know that? Bob Marley, Could You Be loved? One of the lyrics is, don't let them change you or even rearrange you but that sense of could you be loved I think is a really important question and in the institution it's hard to find that space and there are lots of calls for that space and the results calls as in you know EDI initiatives inclusion equality the results are so limited that I think we have to start asking ourselves that question and I had to ask myself that question what does the space look like in which i can be loved and if i can't ask for it then i'm going to need to make it and that's the writing of the book came out of that i guess the asterix therapist comes out of that how to make this space in which i can be loved or we can be loved and i think in the book i i talk about the process as it relates to writing, but it's the same thing, really, replacing instructions with permission. What permissions do I need to give myself in order to be, write, think, do therapy in ways that make sense? And that's often a question that I kind of pose to other people in terms of permission giving. So if, my, if the book is a bit indeterminate in that I don't tell you It's like this or it's like that. I think what I hope that it transmits is a permission to do you in a way, to be that's what I'm doing. And I hope that what is transmitted is a sense that and that is possible. So you can write and produce knowledge in a way that doesn't look like standard text or maybe isn't following on something that's gone before And one of the
1: other things uh, you've already started to touch upon as well is about griefability, but also notions of remembering and forgetting and silencing people or some people being heard over others. In the book, you build on the work of Wambui Mewangi and you quote her work and to remember, and then it's re-member, is to make a member again, to bring that member back into community of imagination, reawakening past trajectories and giving new momentum along new paths of the present. I've been thinking about the word remember since then for quite a bit, because it do, does break up in re and member and I bringing back together. And I'm now also in Dutch, it's herinneren, and I don't think it has the same kind of connotations, but I've, I just find it yeah, really fascinating how this notion works and how. Does that work in your uh, work as a therapist? How do you bring that notion and remembering into your work?
3: Yeah, I was really interested that it doesn't work in Dutch. One of my big griefs in life is that English is really the only language in which I can properly communicate, which feels very limiting. But I guess it means that I have to work with the material I have. And so I really like to think about words and... And rearrange it and how they can be rearranged and, and what their roots meanings are. So you made me think about that when you talk about remembering. There's remembering, there's member, remembering. There's also dismembering to dismember. And I think often when people come for therapy, there is there is something about being dismembered, as in people use language like, I'm in pieces, I'm in bits, I'm falling apart this real sense that that a person does not feel as if they are all together. And also we know about the fragmenting nature of trauma, how trauma does actually kind of separate us, separate, for instance, like a, a bodily experience from a memory, a thought from a feeling. And a lot of the work of therapy is, I guess, an attempt at integration, bringing those those things together in a way that makes sense but there's also the remembering and I guess if we're thinking about the wake the afterlives of slavery or the experience of blackness there's the remembering of coloniality and its psychic effects and I think the work of of Fanon is very important here thinking about ourselves as black people as what he calls phobogenic objects so somehow we create fear in the other and what that does to one's sense of psychic integrity how or you know W.E. Du Bois talked about this double consciousness again this kind of separating of who I am but also how you see me And how you see me needs to be a part of how I see myself so that I can survive the world. So I think there's that remembering that is crucial. And a lot of the work, a lot of really great work is happening right now is around somatic work and embodied practices, which, if you like, is a real remembering. We are still living the trouble of the cartesian subject mind body separation and a lot of the work we're in right now is bringing that back together or recognizing that it was never really separate so i think there's that remembering that is also a part of my work and somebody whose work i love is Catherine mckittrick is i think a geographer her work Dear Science and Other Stories. In that work, she asks the question, she says people often say, where are you from? But the more interesting question is, where do you know from? And it has stuck with me ever since I read that, where do we know from? And how, back to the institution and and kind of academia and institutions, because of the way knowledge is valued and not, some of the places that you know from will fall so far down that hierarchy that even you won't remember that you know from there. Even you won't value that place that you knew from. So a part of it is remembering where we know from and remembering to value where we know from because that is all a resource to us. And I suppose the last thing I say about remembering is and I think this is in partly in the sense that Wambui Mwangi meant it in terms of community and before I wrote the book when I was thinking about this idea as many people are thinking about the idea of like black therapies is there such a thing what would it look like if there was who would practice it how would it be how could we understand it think about it I came across some kind of early research which was u s based so African American experience and I say that because I'm recognizing the limitation of that in terms of global blackness but still it was interesting because what the therapists were saying was that one of their primary goals in whether whatever modalities they used and they used different modalities seemed to be the addressing of isolation but they almost all thought that what was needed was not simply to bring that person back together again to put them back together but to relink them or re-establish community so re-establish a kind of i we relation and that that became a kind of primary goal of treatment which was different to non-black therapists that there was this real kind of focus on that. So I think all of those rememberings are a part of what I try to hold in my work. And the good thing about remembering is when I say I try to hold, I find that we remember better together. Or in fact, I think we need each other to remember or something. So sometimes, you know, somebody will say something in the room and then I remember Oh yeah, that. Or I say something and they remember. Remembering is a relational process anyway.
0: I love that in terms of the idea of siblings and you said you had five kids and I think siblings do that for each other a lot. That kind of oh, do you remember it like that? I I don't remember it. Like that. <laughs> or vice versa. Yeah, I love the way you use language and Joe. I really like the way you use the word trouble in a really interesting way is that I think shift it from having negative connotations to being really productive and I also think it's interesting that you've said a few times that the importance of thinking without others or thinking from a place of not having to kind of like read these particular things and yet you're so referential and your references are so rich like just in this interview and in your book you refer to so many other thinkers and poets and some people I'm familiar with other writers that are new to me so yeah I whilst you're saying that it's important to think from different places your your thinking is clearly so richly informed by so many other things i wonder whether there's a sort of element of thinking about what what is the stuff that people are expected to read or sort of told they should be reading but actually bringing together this tapestry of other knowledge is itself really important work that you're offering I, if i could just speak to that because i think it's a really important point and i've thought about it
3: myself i love reading I love ideas. I love what people bring. Why is it a bit like when Rensky was talking about, I keep trying to read this book, can't read the book, can't read the book. And what I realized for myself is that I have trouble reading people who cannot think me. I can think with all kinds of people. But when people can't, don't, won't, haven't thought me, it's like I can't, entertain you it's like I don't exist in your text, so I can't really be with your text because it disappears me it erases me and I, I, I was kind of thinking that has a limitation of mine because I think other people do it really well I have a colleague Gail Lewis who's a psychoanalytic psychotherapist black feminist and she's a really good friend of mine and and she somehow has a is able to read some of the psychotherapeutic canon if you like in a different way to me and what I love is that when she reads it and then she offers it to me I can I can digest it but I've just come to say it's not really a limitation it's just the way it is this is the way we are different and what's beautiful is that means together we can read beyond and klein
0: it becomes a strength then doesn't it because you're thinking from different places and and can bring it together now we want to ask you a about something you've written about grief that really teases out the way I think it's a really good example of how you utilise language to encourage thinking differently. So I'll just read a section that you've, you've written on grief in your book, Unruly Therapeutic, that goes, This grief is also unruly. It escapes, does not always pay mind to, the categories and models that try to contain it. It refuses words that try to arrange it Normal, delayed, complicated, chronic, and even the word grief itself. The rituals we create and perform make space for rearrangements, for what can only be deranged. This grief is multiple, of more than one body, not one time or one event. This is the grief of the unfolding afterlives of ecological disaster. Come celebrate with me. And as we said, we love your writing style and we're very interested here in the positioning of celebration and grief together. And we wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Well, I think I carry and am in spaces where grief is celebration, as in traditions of wakekeeping, traditions of nine nights, which which is a particular way of kind of responding to death and coming together, sociality, eating, drinking, dancing, playing music, And in some sense, I think in that there's a recognition that life is hard and some understanding of death as release or crossing over, but also traditions of the crossroads, I might call them, where we understand that life meets death and that is a particular liminal space in which other things stop, time rearranges itself. Other things stop and we focus on this and we come together in this particular way And spill, I suppose. Uh, When I was listening to you, reading that passage, I thought, you know, the words like messy and spill and, you know, yeah, it kind of... Grief is an intimate experience. It brings us into intimacy. Sometimes even if we don't want, we don't want that. I've been involved in a project over the last five years with a friend and very good friend and collaborator, Barbie Asante, called Declaration of Independence. Barbie's an artist. And this has been about making spaces for black women and non-binary folks to come together and be together and create, write and perform. It usually ends with a performance of some kind. We've done this in lots of different spaces and countries. Most recently this year with the uh, workers from Transport for London for TfL, And also in Berlin as part of uh, a celebration of the Bois Cayman, which is a a kind of Haitian revolution. um, A couple of years ago in Bergen in Norway, which was beautiful. So there are lots of iterations of this project, and they're all different because people are coming from different places. Grief is always there. Now, this is not to say the invitation is not explicitly come and grieve together. Because if it was, I mean, I don't know, Maybe some people would come, but a lot of people wouldn't. The invitation is to come and be and make and and think together and perform together. But in that, there is always grief. And I think it's because it's an intimate experience. And when we get intimate, intimacy is almost like that's the portal through which grief comes. And grief is almost the portal through which intimacy can come. And there's something about this crucible of coming together and grieving and sharing and laughing and dressing up and dancing and performing that I think makes a really kind of a liberatory space, but also life-giving. Life-giving because it makes room for grief. I guess I'm I'm saying that I don't know if I can separate life and grief or living and grieving because it feels to me that death defines life and life defines death. And as we can find the ceremonies and the spaces and the ways of being with the, both of these realities, then we can live. And maybe part of that speaks to what Renske was talking about on the denial of death. And you're saying, well, clearly... That might be a problem for some, in some places or some periods, but I don't think for everybody, no. I think the denial of death is a problem. Partly it it suggests that one can't grieve and live, one can't have joy, one can't celebrate and grieve. But actually, yeah, I, I don't know how we can do them separately, honestly.
0: Thank you. It's so interesting. One of my kind of pet peeves is people using the phrase, and it, you know, obviously I understand where it's coming from, but the phrase of like taking time to grieve as if you could carve out the time, completely act, continue on with your life after you've done this this activity, and um, rather than recognizing its kind of constant place in in life. And one of the things that we found really engaging in your book was this idea about how we kind of use creative writing. As a practice of therapeutic inquiry, how we might—you were talking about the project, working with people performing, creating, making—that writing is something that that maybe can do that. And you utilise the term creatique, if I'm pronouncing it right, yeah. which is it is spelled c-r-e-a-t-i-q-u-e, and the idea of trusting poetics for their hold of a relational otherwise. So we would love if you could introduce our listeners to the, the idea of Creatique and the process of, of what that looks like for you. I mean, I think maybe the, the easiest way
3: to do that is to describe my journey to it, which is ongoing. I'm not sure I'm even settled on Creatique, but how it came about was I was studying creative writing as a therapeutic practice, really enjoying that studies three years, it was very rich in many, many ways. And where it was difficult, and I often give it was difficult in lots of ways, but I often give this example, was where creative writing hit trouble. We can think of creative writing as such a lovely thing, and poetry is lovely and it makes us feel good and it describes beauty and brings us together and gives us peace. And of course it can do all of those things. But where it doesn't what do we do? And where it didn't, for instance, there is a workshop. I'm participating in it and uh, one of my peers is leading it and using trees is the theme. And in the writing on trees, lynching comes up, trees as a site of lynching. And then somebody else says, well, actually trees are used to make weapons or can be used to make weapons. And the person facilitating the workshop was very upset by this and defensive, really, and kind of said, well, we can't blame trees for that. That's not to do with trees. So really refused the writing that that wasn't... Because this was someone who loved trees and loved... I mean, to be fair, they loved trees. You know, they had a, a, a fantastic relationship with trees. So I could see how it was troubling. But, of course, what that does is it pushes out, in this case, black experience. It says, oh, we can can write about trees creatively, but not there. Let's not do that. So I was thinking about, well, how can this thing called creative writing for therapeutic purposes include the trouble? Because it kept falling down there. It kept not being quite able to. And I wrote a paper on this. It's called Otherwise, and it's in a journal lyric. It's called, Lapidus International Research and Innovation Community Journal, and that paper is called Otherwise, Writing Unbearable Encounters Through the Register of Black Life. So that's my critique of the field, but I also think critique is limited, because critique tends to, re- when you start fighting against something, it tends to reinforce the binaries, the right and roll, the inside and outside, which... Is not helpful. So I'm recognizing that the field doesn't recognize experience outside of maybe the dominant experience. And it is not unlike other disciplines. I think all disciplines have that kind of excluding and erasive tendency, but it is definitely there and that needs challenging. But not in a way there's there's this kind of register of critique we need to think critically as in we need to think but there is a register of critique which is something to do with standards discerning standards what is good enough and what isn't good enough Mm -hmm. so this doesn't meet my standards so i was trying to think instead of how it doesn't meet my standards which i i can feel how it doesn't instead how does it not meet me if I let go of the standards for a minute, how do I not feel met here? And how might we create space? What is the writing that can create space for more complex truths and nuance and these possible meetings of trouble? So, critique was a way to think about the critique, but also to be creative with it to make to make space and to do it kind of. Playfully, kind of in a way that's not so interested in establishing right and wrong, but in in the kind of dance we can do together. So if creative writing for therapeutic purposes either relies on us being able to walk hand in hand happily, or just agree to differ, you be over there and I'll be over here, then creatique is something a bit more like a kind of dance battle, you know, a dance off where okay, let's make moves together and see what we make. And sometimes it's going to feel like a battle and sometimes we're going to be really close to each other and sometimes we'll have a distance, but we'll always be in relation. We'll always be seeing what we can make. So in some sense, that's where I am at with Create. and it obviously has allowed me to include in my teaching texts that are they're difficult yeah D- content has allowed me to include difficult texts or texts that expose the difficulty as opposed to often it's ones that are seen as universally beautiful
0: I really like how productive that concept is and how it's not it's not defensive you, you know like you were saying a lot of it can become kind of critique can be perceived as almost quite violent really kind of marking out territory kind of especially in academia this kind of like oh you people quite nervous of critique maybe don't want to be criticized you're quite fearful of it well actually it can be so important to what drives your work forward drives your thinking forward can be really productive and supportive and and help make new things rather than kind of just defending your own line of argument all the time
3: yeah absolutely and i i didn't mention but should mention because as you know i like to cite people how important The work of Sylvia Winter is to that idea that I I don't want to, because although she doesn't talk about creatique, she does talk about man with a capital M and man's de-godding of the universe and making of this very rational world and othering others, black, brown, indigenous folk and women. And kind of, she talks about putting them on a reservation, but that poetics, poetry, she says, which she calls a generic term for art, is the thing that escapes, is the thing that survives as an alternate mode of cognition. So the others are all penned up and, and seen as not having any valuable knowledge, but poetry continues as this, and it's not rational, is another way of seeing the world. So that paper that I'm was talking about uh, a few moments ago is is really that otherwise I'm talking about this other way of being in the world and how we make space
0: for that now you have written another book and you called this a memoir biomythography entitled how the hiding seek it was published in 2018 I don't I read a lot of memoir we're really interested in memoir around death loss and dying and we're really interested in the term biomythography. so we wondered if you could give us some insight into how you're how you're utilizing that term. I think we're back
3: to the problem of like fixed meanings, you know, this kind of colonial lexicon, and like what is an autobiography or a biography, and what is a memoir, and what is the difference? And when you look it up, generally the sense is that um, the biography is a kind of factual account and the memoirs a bit like maybe reflections on a life it's uh, and also the the biography is more complete more likely to include a whole life whereas memoir might be reflections on a particular period now i wrote this as part of the process of studying creative writing as a therapeutic I was particularly interested in life writing and in what it can do but also how creative writing and using some of the characteristics and techniques of fiction might enable me to write about very difficult things or things that felt that they, they needed more care than simply to write them as a series of facts. Do you know what I mean? That to write them as a series of facts would have been quite harsh and somehow they needed more than that. So in How the Hiding Seek, I changed some of the names of the characters. I wrote short stories. I included poetics. I staged conversations that didn't happen. So it's kind of speculative. I used genre. One chapter is like a fairy tale. So I did all these different things as a way of feeling what that was like. What is it like to write my, my life but actually in this kind of creative way. Um, so How the Hiding Seek is the result of that. And then I had to decide what to call it, how to describe it, because when you publish a book, you have to put it in a genre or category or you have to give some people a clue what they might read <laughs> if they choose to get this book. And it was Audrey Lorde, actually, who provided an answer for me. Audrey Lord's autobiography slash memoir, Zami, she described as a bio-mythography. And I really liked that because I think what it does, if you think of bio as life and graphy as writing, it puts myth in the middle. And it really is another space-making device and a recognition that, back to memory, how we remember and what we remember is so contingent. It's not as simple as to say, I'm writing about this past period of my life because I'm writing it in the present moment in which I have particular thoughts and feelings about it, which are also showing up on the page. So yes, I'm writing about 1985, but I'm also writing about 2018. So this bio-mythography, I felt there was space for nuance and complexity and dynamic, you know, something dynamic, something that could move and shift. And of course I love the work of Audrey Lord, so very happy to follow her lead, and and use that word. So that's where it comes from. I won't I won't claim to to have invented it.
0: Thank you, thank you for sharing that with us. And we're coming to the end of our interview now. So we've got a question we ask all of our guests, which is for some advice, really. So it, this could be about anything. We've we've told you the questions in advance, so you've had a bit of time to think about something you maybe might want to share. Guests sometimes give sort of death and grief advice. Sometimes people just give broad life advice. And I know that maybe it's mostly for me and friends because we really like the advice. <laughs> so we'll take whatever you've
3: got. I, I will confess, I only saw this question this morning. I'd started to look at the questions and I was like, oh, you know what, I'll, I'll finish up tomorrow. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, my!" advice, the pressure. So I kind of stuck with the question, which was like pearls of wisdom. And I thought about pearls and I thought about their smoothness and their shininess and remember the grit that's in the, you know, around which they're created And I thought, well, I don't know if I've got pearls of wisdom, but I do think it's important to remember the grit. So I do think it's important to go deeper, to look under the surface, and this applies, I think, to everything I've said. You could think it's just a pearl. We could think this is just a world, or this is just a building, historical building often here. But actually, whose blood is in here? Whose work is in here? Whose body is also in here? And that that is important. And I think that's the movement that I... I don't know if it's advice or it's a kind of a a plea, really. Can we sense deeper so that we can not exclude the grit, so that we can remember the grit? And that will probably possibly and essentially cause us to spill it's so we won't be smooth and shiny and and looking beautiful always we will spill and that is absolutely necessary i think for our grieving but also for our just being and living together and and making the world that we in which we can all live and breathe
0: thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for For staying on a little bit longer than scheduled as well. That You're very welcome. Actually, it's a remarkably good time. I felt
3: like we really talked about a lot of things and actually that's good. So much food for thought in
1: this episode. And one of the phrases I wrote down is... Where do you know from? Because I thought that was such a lovely way of thinking about knowledge and what you know and what is valued and what is perhaps uh, not as valued by either yourself or by others. But Beth, what were some highlights for you in this episode?
0: Well, I love that too. And I asked myself, where do I know from and where could I learn from? Like in response to that, because it's just so... I like a little short question like to, you asked me once and I think we talked about it a bit on Twitter if it makes you feel weird why does it make you feel weird and I think that's really helpful in death studies because there are sometimes things where I might feel a bit uncomfortable or freaked out by like a particular practice around death loss and dying and then I'm really question like mm, why is that making me feel uncomfortable so it's great to have these kind of prompts to just think about things differently and I just really loved feluke is someone who can talk and write and sit with messiness and doesn't need to square everything away is comfortable with indeterminacy and comfortable with questions and not knowing and you can just get a sense already just listening to this episode i think of how great she is at holding space and how good at her job she must be i bet she is awesome would you sign up for a therapy session with feluke taylor
1: I feel the way she was talking it was already kind of a therapy session at least I felt it was very therapeutic and just because it gave me so much food for thought as well especially also how she thinks about language is critical of the English language and how that limits uh, the way she can express herself even though the way she is expressing herself in English is so beautiful and profound and linked to so many ideas. One of the things I reflected on a lot is that I, to this day, still feel uh, slightly uncomfortable expressing myself in English and also with certain phrases or the way you say certain things. I know I make mistakes or I don't know a lot of words. So, (laughs) but I also found it interesting how so many of the things that we are critical of in the English language. And one of the examples I wrote down is the word history that it's his story it's again like in the episode the word remember remember it doesn't work that way in dutch so the wo- dutch word for history is geschiedenis and there is not like a pronoun hidden in there <laughs> so uh, i i find it fascinating how even those critiques
0: of language are shaped by the language yeah absolutely and on the kind of languagey stuff I also thought she was an excellent defender of complicated writing which is what I love and I I totally empathize with and recognize and understand where people are coming from when they're calling for like the use of plain English in writing and that things should be accessible to audiences I've had a good discussion with Prof Gail Leatherby in um, Falmouth when we've gone out for lunch and stuff talking about the importance of when you'll say interviewing people and then you write that up that the people that you've interviewed should be able to engage with what you've written about them like it should be written in an accessible way and I totally agree with all of that at the same time I love like wordplay I love Derrida I love complicated use of of language language in a way that is interesting and thoughtful and like troublesome I like the way that Sarah Ahmed uses the term trouble and Faluke does also in the interview and just like throughout. I like writing that's kind of like diving into a maze and you've got to find your way and take different routes and writing with is such a nice concept there to be like okay maybe I don't understand it straight away but what can I do with it? What if I try and work with it and engage with it? I'm aware that it's something that I really like and that there's a balance there. You've got to think about your audience and like who it's for and stuff like that and I, I can really see both sides of that sort of debate but I also think it's kind of a redundant debate in that most people are quite happy with both, with both approaches and both ways. Uh, I think they are. are. Are you happy with a little bit of Fuku and a little bit of... Uh... Am I okay with a little bit of <laughs>
1: Um I think different ways of writings are for different audiences and not everything needs to be accessible for everyone. But if you do research a specific summary or something or some kind of way of engaging with the research writing about it yes I think a lay audience uh, should be able to understand that but then with that there are so many variations of what a lay person might understand or not so it's so complicated I personally also felt vindication because I feel when I started my academic career a criticism was always like you're being too descriptive or you're just summarizing other people's work but what is your argument or what are you adding? And I like the idea of just by writing out other others' ideas, you are thinking about and thinking through those ideas. I am a person, like I need to think, sit with stuff sometimes and also with lectures and stuff. I wasn't the person to raise my hand and ask a question. I would be a week later being like, oh, you said that and now I have a question. So I think also with reading and with writing, uh, for some people, it will take time. And it's also I reading the first time reading Foucault and like Pierre Bourdieu, like horrible, long sentences. And but now I think if I would go back, I would understand it better. But it was also like reading in a second language, uh, reading all these concepts for the first time. I think it's also as a, as a reader, you go on a journey and it's okay to
0: not understand things the first time. And I think that can be true, not just of academic writing, but like novels and stuff. And apologies for my terrible French pronunciation in a minute. But um, one of my favorite authors, Julian Barnes, has talked about how reading a boulevard pecochet, when he was younger, he was like, what is this? And then when he was like his 40s and 50s, he was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever been written. And it's just the best novel of all time. So I think that sometimes it's kind of coming to things at the time that is right for you as well. And I really love Luque's point about what needs to be citable. Uh, I've not thought of that question before and I love it so not how do you cite something a common question for those of us in teaching is you know what students get so worked up often about like how to cite and importance of citing which is is great and important but what needs to be citable that isn't is is great and it made me really glad that our episode has a DOI and that can help to legitimize it as a citable text.
1: No, I, I also absolutely agree with what you're saying about novels and reading texts. And there have been books that I, we spoke about reading in the episode as well quite a bit, but there have been books that I read the first page a number of times. And then at one point in time, I was able to like read it in one go. So there's also just certain books for certain occasions,
0: perhaps you yeah, have certain stages of life or how you, where you're at at the moment. And that's Okay yeah that's okay and I love the discussions about academic publishing situations where the like academic journals can't handle the asterisks I just thought oh this 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 winds me up we have conversations like this quite often as you know when journals and infrastructures cannot support criticality in particular ways or can't, you know there's just no way to indicate this or there's no way to add this I, I find it laughable that we can't have an asterisk somehow though I can imagine that the reasoning behind why that is it's probably some sort of you know this won't handle this data or something like that but I thought that was very interesting and also the idea of what needs to be citable I thought was really nice about making sure that things that should be that can be cited more ways to make different kinds of knowledge citable to encourage citation practices that take into account more than just the same stuff that is being cited all the time and like you know why do you need to go back to xyz I remember we had a conversation with someone about it once and they were like oh you know do we need to to sort of cite Freud on this and on that and we were just like I don't see why you would but it was interesting that their education had in led them to believe that they would have to do that and I think probably for many of us our education has led us to believe that that is something we would have to do it's so great to see those ideas being challenged a little bit more. How did you find that? Well, on both points, I can
1: see how uh, an asterisk is, because uh, I currently work for an embassy with various computer systems that a symbol messes up the system. So probably there will be a pop-up being like the symbol not allowed because that's not part of a title or a name. But we had it with the Cancer Project. I We wrote a paper with our lived experience members and one person didn't want his surname to be listed, but you can't leave that space blank. So now we've made it an X, but obviously X is not his surname, but there are still (laughs) like problems with, we have to now go into a system and also why can't we publish academic papers by just using our first name or surname? I also recently, again, through embassy work learned that in Dubai, people don't have first names. You just have one, a long name. So we have, uh, the discussion was, we have this Dutch uh, child that is born in Dubai and by, we have to abide by their name laws. So his first name and second name are both listed as his surname. And for his first name, there are three dots because they are following the uh, name system in Dubai and it's again. That makes sense in that context, but it's when you move it to a different context, then suddenly something becomes wrong or difficult or unmanageable or weird or strange. But actually, yeah, what these are all systems and ways of thinking
0: that we've made up. Why can't things be different? Definitely. That's a fascinating example. I'm going to have to mull that one over. (laughs) Lovely to (laughs) talk to you, Rensk, as ever. And everyone, we will catch you next time with another glorious episode of the Deaf Studies Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies
1: Podcast. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website, thedeafstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment. Follow us on social media at the deaf Podcast, and, of course, spread the word.